Losing at the death in a top-of-the-table clash is never fun. But unfortunately, that's what happened to United against league leaders Arsenal over the weekend. Today on Devils in the Details, we cover the weekend's heartbreak, a bounce-back victory against Nottingham Forest to give the Red Devils a foot into the cup final, and a number of questions you guys had about those matches and more. Not many know this, but Vout Veghorst is actually a distant relative of our very own Case Van Hemmen. Case, how does it feel to see your ancestry on the pitch in United Red? Just for clarity, everyone, that is false. And Aaron made that up completely off the cuff before I had the chance to read the outline for this episode. Um, I think everyone knows I'm rooting for him. I think he's a a better player than he showed at Burnley. And um, I think he's, he's already shown that at United. I think he's... Even in what you could call like his more understated performances, I think he's had a very positive effect on the team. Today, I think, was his best performance so far. So, Yeah, I thought he was really good. And I mean, I knew what he was going to add, but it's nice to see him adding it to the team and it actually working as planned. Because um, things don't always go as planned in this sport. And speaking of which, the Arsenal game definitely didn't. So, Arsenal, let's start with the general summary. In your mind, Case, what went wrong? I would look at it this way. I think a lot of people view this through the lens of what the result looks like, right? You go away to the league-leading side and you lose in the 90th minute. That looks like the game was there for the taking, Um, especially in a 3-2 match. It's not like we just bunkered down. We created a few chances. We took them. If you look at the actual performance, I would say that's not what happened. I would go so far as to say that we played poorly. Let me elaborate. Let me be more specific. Um, We didn't play poorly. We played poorly in the phases, the aspects that good teams are good in. So, for instance, we pressed poorly. I think we were pretty wasteful when we did get the ball. We we played out of pressure very poorly. Um, What we did do well is in settled defense, we defended hard, which I think is why a lot of people perceive this as a game where that was for the taking. Because we took our chances and we fought tooth and nail when we were defending in our own box. Uh, Which is, you know, that's good to see. But ultimately, I think we failed where good teams fail. uh, Which is, again, pressing and playing out of pressure. Uh, But that's okay. Because this is a really, really good Arsenal team. And we are two years behind them in the process we're in. Ultimately, I think it's alright. I still look at it as a positive event in our season, even though it was disappointing. Yeah, I somewhat agree. I I definitely agree with the sort of categorization of, you know, what actually played out versus what went wrong systemically. I think starting with, you know, the way the game actually played out, I think what you really saw was despite being relatively outplayed throughout the match, United did take the lead. And usually when that happens, you then have a large chance, even as the inferior side, of being able to hold on to that lead and defensive mistakes undid United's prospects of being able to do that. Um, And then the second aspect was, like you said, the the pressing and the general build-up play and other aspects of this performance that showed that United are just really not quite where Arsenal are in this process of rebuilding or building a title-challenging side quite yet. Um, Starting with the first one, let's talk a little bit about defensive breakdowns of what went wrong I think the first one that at least stood out to me on at least two of the goals was Wambasaka um on the first goal clearly losing Anketi at the back post and then I'm pretty sure on the on the winner he also lost Anketia on the back post is that right was it Anketia who scored uh the winner is Anketia. uh I don't know that Wambasaka is the one marking him uh ultimately though like I think that comes down more to Odegaard's availability in the box than does what happens after that. Like, you, if you let the ball get into the box, specifically into the box and between the width of the posts, enough, the ball will bounce into your net. That That's really what the failure was, I think, in this match. In the post-match press conference, 
something that was commented on was um, that all of the goals were preventable in that Arsenal didn't get like clear cut chances, which I assume what was meant by that is like one-on-ones with the goalkeeper or, you know, uh, uncontested crosses, but rather, um, you know, uh, failures in terms of marking, whether that be, you know, Wambasak at the back post against Enketia, whether that be midfielders or wingers uh, following wingers and midfielders back into our box. Um, so I think really that's what it comes down to. I, I try not to get too caught up in like whether the ball finds its way into the net once you're in those situations. I, I try to focus more on winding up in those situations. And Arsenal had a dozen chances to put the ball, to, to get lucky, you know what I mean, in this match. Yeah, it actually wasn't Wambasaka. Um, yeah, yeah, I pretty much agree. I I guess the general point you're trying to make is that part of defending is not conceding enough situations that the opponent have an opportunity to create a chance, even if you defend those situations well. So essentially, you're going for the fact that like United defended well in parts in this game in settled defense, but gave away so much territory and possession that they were likely to concede these chances. Yeah. Yeah. I I think you can summarize it that way. Yeah. I think it's really easy to construe this match as like, it was close, but then, you know, Arsenal just nicked it at the end. And that's not really what happened. I think that's how it played out after United got the initial opener from Rashford, which is obviously a wonder goal, but in my opinion, United were outplayed throughout this match, and I think that's what you're going for as well. So let's talk about that instead of talking about what specifically went wrong and how the game played out. Um, yeah, I, I think this is like sort of the showing up of a lot of things that have gone wrong and then also a couple of new things coming up in this game. Um, in terms of the things that have gone wrong, I really think United struggled to, like again, keep the ball in midfield in this game close it out when at 1-0 and just like delay force the other team to really work for opportunities to both get the ball and create chances and because of that they were playing a better team this time and Arsenal just capitalized on their opportunity to create yeah i mean i think ultimately if you look at the midfield that we fielded uh this weekend and, 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 you know, that, that, that midfield features McTominay, who's obviously not one of our starters in general, but it, it, well, he was in this match. None of those players want the ball under pressure. Uh, again, this is a recurring thing. We come, up, we come up against big sides. We have a poor performance, and, and this is something that you're, you hear Aaron and I saying. Um, but I think that's, I mean, it's a, it's a problem that keeps coming up, so it's a thing we keep pointing out, right? Um, there's only so much you can do structurally. Uh, before uh, it becomes, it comes down to player tendencies, right? Um, None of our midfielders are comfortable turning on the ball, and that creates situations where um, you're playing out of pressure. This is a well-coordinated pressing side. Um, And ultimately, there comes a point where you have to play centrally. You have to play, you know, a a line-breaking pass. That's how you break pressure. Um, And... I would say our fullbacks, for the most part, and our center backs can, can play those balls, but the players receiving them, specifically in this match, McTominay, Erickson, Bruno, they do not want to have to turn, um, and they can't. And so what you wind up with is you play those line-breaking passes and they play them backwards or they lose the ball. Yeah, I actually think we talk a lot about how United switch their style because De Gea can't play out of the back. And we did at the start talk a lot about McTominay and Fred in like episodes two to three, I think, and how they struggle under pressure and playing out. But it hasn't really been as much of a theme since then because Casemiro joined and United haven't really played that many high pressing sides until the Man City game. Um, And so this has come up, I think, in all three games uh, between them, the Man City game, Crystal Palace to a lesser extent, and then Arsenal. Um... We had two questions. We we sent out a Q&A before the episode. 
Um, one was from Ricardo. Will Casemiro be good enough in possession and first phase buildup for Ten Hag's style of play? And then there was Nostrum who said, is Bruno limited in a possession-based controlling side? I'll give my short answers, which is yes on both counts. My long answers are, as for the first one, Casemiro. I think Casemiro is fine in this capacity as long as he's the worst of your midfield three in terms of receiving under pressure as opposed to the best. Um, I still wouldn't say he's the best. I think Erickson is a little bit better than him at this. But uh, you can't be relying on him for it, which is something Alm said when we had him on uh, many, many months ago. Uh, Alm, just four. for yeah, for, for reference, Frank everybody, if you, if you started listening to us more recently, we had Alm Arvind, who, who's been writing up Real Madrid and watching Real Madrid for a very long time at a very high level um, on the podcast. Back in August when we signed Casemiro, we talked about Casemiro's strengths and weaknesses. The main thing he highlighted was that um, Modric and Kroos sort of gave, gave Real Madrid the opportunity to, to play around Casemiro in build-up. And that when he was burdened with more responsibility, uh, his, you know, his progressive passing numbers went up, his progressive ball-carrying numbers went up. Uh, metrically, he looked better, but ultimately it was bad for the team because his failures were, were, were very visible. Um, so that's what I would say about Casemiro. You can accommodate him if the other midfielders are better at this thing than he is, which is not the case right now. As for Bruno, um, yeah, he's definitely limited in a possession-based system. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like the hardest question to answer about this team is, is Bruno good enough that you build everything around him to accommodate his shortcomings? Or is he, as I think another question put it, our Coutinho, which is to say an excellent player who doesn't fit the way we're going to be playing in the long term, who might be better off being sold for a really high figure. Again, I'm not expressing an opinion on this. In fact, I think I lead towards the former the former choice, which is to say, I don't think you can sell him. I don't think that makes sense because he's so important when we're playing well. Um, but yeah, what do you think, especially about that second one? Because I think we agree on the first one for the most part. Yeah, the question was from Aditya. Um, I It's hard. So here's my thing. With Casemiro, or let's start, let's start with a general idea of midfield, right? I personally, and maybe this is wrong, but I personally have the belief that largely in the current game, if you want to dominate midfield at the highest level, you're playing three midfielders. Like most teams that play two midfielders are not dominating games the same way. Maybe there are a couple in a 3-5-2. United are not going to be playing a 3-5-2 or a 3-4-3. Um, in a back four, you want to have three midfielders. Those midfielders have a scope of responsibilities. Um, they have chance creation for the forwards, uh, defense, being able to prevent the opponent from creating chances, and then getting the ball from one side of the pitch to the other. And that includes, you know, build-up, progression. Um, that includes things like press resistance, ability to carry, ability to pass progressively. With Casemiro, what you're getting is a player who can't really do the build-up under pressure, exit the press kind of stuff, but can very much do the defensive stuff and can very much do the progressive stuff when not under pressure. And I, think I, I, would, I would add is I think he's quite good in the final third for a defensive midfielder. Like, very yes, good. Yes, he is. Yeah. yeah. What you're getting with Bruno is a player who can't defend. I think he is... I think there are incorrect perceptions of his ability in the press because he runs a lot. I think he makes a lot of errors and doesn't... He hasn't still hasn't really found his feet in the press despite it being now half a year or a year of trying to play a high-pressing system. Um, at uh, the way most big teams do or, or pressing s- systems that resemble what la- what a lot of big teams do. Yeah, l- l- um, I, I, w- I would argue against holding Rangnick's tenure against him just because I think things were so screwed up in general. But yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the real problem where it results, because a lot of midfielders are not good defensively. Uh, a lot of attacking midfielders, like, one response might be, you know, De Bruyne isn't that good defensively, and that's probably true. Um, the problem is he's also very poor under pressure on the ball. 
Um, he can't carry or dribble. He can pass progressively when not under pressure and given time. And I think his decision-making on the ball is also errant. So what you're left with is a player who is basically an attacker taking up a spot in central midfield. Um, He's going to give you way more goals and assists than pretty much every other attacking midfielder in Europe. Like, both underlying and actual, he has been fabulous since joining United. His numbers are amazing. But what you're giving up in exchange for that is an ability to really control games from start to finish uh, as a result of having that kind of player. And because he's not good defensively, you have to have one guy behind him who is really good defensively. So you're looking for two players who can both dominate long stretches of games on their own and also be really strong defensively on their own. And you're going to have a really hard time assembling a midfield that could do that. Long story short, I think Bruno is so good that he belongs at a club of this level. I question whether he needs to be the central piece of the side. And... I think this issue will play out more downstream when United are better than they are now because, in theory, they will have more players who can create goals the way he does and therefore threaten his spot in the team. Right now, he's clearly the best player in the team at that kind of stuff. Um, So he's going to have to play, but down the line, when maybe that aspect of his game is not as important to the side you're going to see a lot more questions of whether he should be playing every single week in midfield. But I wouldn't, like, I, I also think there's questions about, like, he has such an important presence in the team. Like, he's such a central figure. So I think it's kind of hard to drop him or 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 drop him and not get rid of him. But anyway, I think this is an issue that's going to play out long term. And I do think the ceiling of the team is going to be limited with with Bruno... Or uh, or with both Bruno and Casemiro in it, in a world where you can find two midfielders who do the scope of responsibilities without Bruno. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Um, the only thing I would add is, um, or I, I guess I guess really I'm not adding anything here, but I, I agree as to the point about when there are better uh, creative players in this team, this question will become more pertinent um, because I think right now. It's difficult to answer this question because I don't know. I think any opinion about Bruno right now where it's like, you need to get rid of him. He's the problem is wrong. Like for who, right? Like who are you going to exactly. replace Bruno with? But, but, but I mean like even generally like saying like this summer, it has to be a priority or even the summer after it needs to be a priority. I think that's objectively wrong because he's doing, he's creating and assisting goals. Uh, he's, he's, he's scoring and assisting chances and goals um, at a rate higher than any other midfielder in this team. So, like, what are you Most other do? midfielders in the world. For yeah, the exactly. He's doing it at a really high level. Uh, FB ref has his expected assists per 90 this season at the highest it's ever been for United. That is to say, higher than it was even in his second season uh, when he had 12 assists. So, yeah. Like, I think quality of data there aside, like, he's playing well. In the aggregate. So I don't want to dwell on this too much, which I, in saying I've made happen, but. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's fine. I I do think it's an important topic based on the, based on what has played out in the draw against Palace and then the loss against Arsenal. And then again, in the force game, I honestly thought he was really poor in the force game until that really good goal. Um, And I thought the game was quite end to end in part because the midfielders, mostly him, were giving the ball away unprompted. Yeah, I mean... Uh, in areas where they shouldn't be. He drives me completely insane. And then the moment where I'm, like, ready to say something very mean about him, he does something incredible. All right. So, we score first. Arsenal score two in answer. We score again. That's what I want to talk about. Um, I think there's a perception amongst certain people that we played better than we actually did in this match because when we were scored against, we immediately put pressure on Arsenal. Uh, when we went down, that is to say, 2-1, we immediately put pressure on, on Arsenal and scored from a set piece. This is something we've spoken about a couple of times in the last few episodes, which is set pieces are real goals, and we need to get better at set pieces. However, 
they skew our perception of how the team has played in open play because goals from set pieces are generally pretty, they're aberrations in the grand scheme of things. You can be better or worse at set pieces and it matters. However, when you score those goals at set pieces is kind of random. Yeah, I'll put a number on that. Yeah, I'll put a number on that. Uh, In Europe's top five leagues, about 30% of goals come from non-open play. You know, let's say you're you're averaging two goals a game as a Premier League team. Uh, that's like 80 goals in a season, roughly, I'm rounding up. Um, but 80 goals in a season, if 30% of those are from set pieces, that's, you know, double digits. That's a lot of goals. It's, you know, uh, That I think includes a, penalties, though. Yeah. But yeah, go on. A goal in the Premier League is worth more than like a million pounds, for reference, if you were to try to quantify that. So it's millions and millions of pounds of expenditure. It's, you know, it's a lot of goals. But... When set-piece goals happen and change game state, it skews our perception of team performance in open play. Because when you change game state, you change how teams play. Uh, You know, you you play differently. You have different incentives in in a drawing game state than you do in a losing game state. We were in a losing game state. We scored a set-piece goal, which I'm not going to say we didn't deserve. Set-piece goals happen. But it changed game state. Um, and I think it made a, it look like our push when we went down to one was more effective than it really was. Yeah, to some extent. And I'd also say the final scoreline of 3-2, again, made it look like a really close game when, you know, that was the aberration that let United back into the game where they were pretty much dominated from that point. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Forrest, Showtime asked, is Veghorst the reincarnation of R9? Um, Veghorst's first goal, it was a good goal. I do think it was a goal that Martial scores inconsistently um, in terms of lurking on the last line, reading where the shot might miss. The shot was from Anthony. And then getting on the rebound and putting that away. And those are some of the most important goals in football. They make up more than you think of a striker's goals in a season. Veghorst, to me, has impressed me a lot in build-up in his hold-up and link-up play. I think he's a really useful asset. The ball sticks to him really well. That was definitely one concern I had about Mar- about replacing Martial is United needs striker presence, but they also need this element of pretty good hold-up play to essentially have a focal point for the team to function around. And I think Vekhorst has done a really good job at that. In at least two of the three games, I also think he wasn't bad in the Arsenal game. Um, but now he also scored case. What are your impressions of Veghorst so far? Is it what you expected? I'd say it's pretty much exactly what I've expected. Yeah. I would say it's exactly what I expected. Um, his link up play is good. Um, he's box presence. Uh, he's an intelligent goal scorer, not an incredibly gifted goal scorer, but an intelligent one, which means you get those rebound goals. Um, which, you know, if you, I do think that's one thing that Ronaldo offered that Martial really doesn't. And that's, he he's obsessed with goals. And so he recognizes that rebounds are like a great opportunity. You can get two or three or four goals in a season just by hunting rebounds. We also saw this difference when we signed Cavani um, and Martial stopped playing for, you know, not necessarily related reasons, but Cavani scored like two or three rebounds that season. I think it's a really good... Uh, how, how should I say this? A really good litmus test for whether a striker gets where goals come from in reality, uh, whether you're scoring these, and we saw him score today. So yeah, I, he's he's not again. He's not going to light the world on fire, but I think he's perfectly serviceable. I, I think it's wrong to claim that he belongs at a club like Burnley, which is not to be disrespectful towards Burnley. I just mean I think he's he has a utility at a higher level. Yeah, pretty much agree. I. Honestly, if he's going to score something like anywhere between two and five to one and two and do what he does when he's not scoring, you're going to find it relatively hard to replace him with a good striker in the current market, I think. Um, Not saying he should start for United next season. That is not what I'm saying. United need to go splash. But the list of players they can splash on to improve upon that is not as large as, as you might think it is. Yeah, and I think the main variable in that is is how much he scores because he is clearly doing all the other stuff. He's also really good defensively. 
I think he was the most prolific presser in the Premier League by metrics last season. I don't think that's necessarily to say he's a good presser. The metrics don't suggest that. They just suggest that he presses a lot, um, which is really nice. And I do think he is a good presser. So, yeah, happy to see Veghorst doing well, and I think he's going to continue to start. Um, would you continue to start him in every game when Martial's back? Not every game. Um, but I don't know. Martial, I'll say, I'll say this. I'm kind of, at my, I'm at my wits end with Martial. So I might not be saying this from an entirely objective standpoint, but I would lean towards playing Martial less and him more. I think I agree. I, I think in games like the Arsenal game, it would have been really nice to have Martial, uh, just for what he offers on the ball. And, and the fact that most of United's play was not in the phases where I think Martial struggles the most. Um, but it definitely helps to have Veghorst against teams that United expect to dominate. And that makes up more than 80% of the season when you're playing in the Europa League, I think. So that's really good. Uh, and I think he will play more games than Martial from now to the end of the season, injury or not, to Martial. And of course, barring his own injuries. Injuries aside, I think most people, at least going into this match, wouldn't have, wouldn't have said that. Yeah, last player I wanted to talk about before we go to Q&A was Anthony. I thought Anthony was really good in this game. Ten Hag, after the Arsenal game. Anthony's been getting a lot of criticism. We've talked about it. Everyone in the world has talked about it, it seems. Um, actually, I'll quote him. He can do better. I see space for improvement. And for instance, I think you notice, we want him to be more direct, more involved. But the team is performing better if he is on the pitch. And that is a good thing. A good base to build further on. Which is pretty much what we've said. The team is way better with Anthony. I think the team was completely lost when Anthony went off against Arsenal. I thought he was a lot more direct in the Forest game, which is possibly a coincidence after Ten Hag made those comments. It's definitely something they've been telling him. I think the reason why it clicked in this game might be because it was easier for him to be more direct against Forest than it was against other teams. But yeah, he could have scored multiple goals, I think, and assisted a few as well. Like he was, He was really good. Yeah, I agree. Um, I thought that 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 quote was funny when I read it because I think it got kind of twisted. Like I saw some headlines that were like he needs like uh, Anthony needs to you know he's not living he's not playing well enough you know as a quote uh, when I think the the real sentiment of that quote was um, that Anthony is playing well enough. Uh, but he can still play better. Excuse to transition into another question we had, which I don't think we actually have written down. Um, which is, um, out of the many options for the right wing position, who do you think should be used there in the next season? This is from Hugh. Anthony. Uh, yeah, and I think, <laughs> and you can guess from this answer, the answer is Anthony. Um, and I don't think it's really that close. As for the other options, which are Sancho... Ahmad, Palistri, and he said Alonga for kicks. Uh, we're going to talk about Alonga later, so I'll leave Alonga out for now. Um, Sancho. I don't know what to say about Sancho right now. We'll revisit Sancho in like a month, hopefully. Um, but there's a lot more we can get from him. I don't think the answer is at right wing. Um, I think Ten Hag made it pretty clear that he doesn't think the answer is at right wing. Yeah. Um, as for... Ahmad and Aaron, please interrupt me at whatever point because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going down the line here. Uh, I just don't think Ahmad is. I, I've been impressed with Ahmad during his loan spell. I've seen a few matches of him at, at Sunderland. I've also seen clips of almost every match. I've looked at the numbers. There's a big gap between the Championship and the top end of the Premier League, Champions League football, specifically out of like the sophistication of how you play out of possession and in possession. And I don't think Ahmad is ready for that at all. And I also think he's probably got very similar physical limitations to Anthony. So I think people who look at him as like, oh, he's already better than Anthony are just wrong. Um, you've got. I'm also gotta, not 100% convinced he's a right winger based on what I've heard and seen. I think he could be an attacking midfielder rather than a right winger. I think that's a possibility. Um, why? Do you think he's like a left winger or a striker? Or are you... Not a left winger. Probably not a striker, although I do think 
he has impressed in appearances at striker when he has played there. Um, I think attacking midfielder could be realistic. It it really does depend on how he scales to senior level. I think right now we have an idea that he can handle the physicality to some extent to at least be able to create output as a passer. I think the area where we're loose a little bit is how effectively he can dribble at the top level. His end product is in the... If he produced that for United... In fact, I'll say this. So far, it's about the same in the championship as what Anthony is doing in the Premier League. His 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 specifically what kind of output? Uh, non penalty expected yeah. goals plus expected assists per ninety. Yeah. So just expected goal contributions per game played. Um, he's about the same as Anthony right now. They're both hovering around point three five expected goal contributions per ninety. That is not good enough to start for United at right wing. Um, On either count. I do think Anthony... For the record. Yeah, yeah, for either of them. I, I do think Anthony... We've, I, I have reason to believe his numbers will go up. I think United can attack better as a side that's going to make his numbers go up. Most of United's players have poor numbers except for Bruno and Rashford. Anthony can create more from crossing situations when he's facilitated better to do so. I think he has... His output has gone down significantly in the matches since Dalo got injured, which I don't think is a coincidence. So there's a number of reasons why I think Anthony can get better. There's a number of reasons why I think Ahmad can get better. His his numbers have been steadily going up throughout the season. Um, I think Ahmad is likely to get a chance in the first team. I don't think he's going to come in and be the starter next season. Yeah, L- yeah. let me clarify what I mean about Ahmad. I love Ahmad. I was bullish on Ahmad when we signed him. I, I wrote a glowing article about him for scouted football that now that when I look back at it, I think I was probably too high on a few things. Um, So yeah, I'll start with that. I really want Ahmad to get an opportunity with the first team. I think he will get an opportunity with the first team and I think he'll wind up in the first team. All of that said, I don't think he's better than Anthony. And those are two very different things. Um, And I think that it, it comes from, from one, what you were saying his output in the championship is basically identical to Anthony's output in the Premier League. If you're disappointed by Anthony's output in the Premier League, imagine what a mod is going to look like when you scale it up to the physical level of the Premier League and the defensive output that we're going to ask of him. Which takes me to my second thing about Ahmad, which is if you look at defensive metrics, you'll see Ahmad's actually slightly outpacing Anthony. However, defensive metrics, and I'm going to put this in the clearest terms I possibly can, suck and the reason they or at least at least the the metrics that we have available so what you have to look at is the the sophistication of the the defensive responsibilities that they're there that have been put upon them because you have got players who just run around like headless, headless chickens and you've got players who execute schemas let's elaborate upon this a little bit because i think a lot of people look at us as people who can explain or clarify why we think these metrics are bad um Defensive metrics measure how much a player defends. To be clear, we're talking about how good a player is at defending. Tackles, interceptions, pressures, blocks, clearances. They are all measures of how many times a player does that. That doesn't mean that they are... First of all, it doesn't take into account positioning at all. So an example of that is Wambasaka, right? Wambasaka positions himself... In, a, in such a way to set himself up for his ability to tackle. So his tackle stats are great. Um, pressures doesn't take into account whether the pressures that actually occurred are good or not. So an example is, you know, with Bruno, Bruno will have loads of pressures, but some of them will be him pressing the goalkeeper and opening a lane for the goalkeeper to pass him behind. That's a bad pressure, but it's a pressure, right? So... And and then many people will say, you know, like earlier in the episode, you used Veghorst's pressing numbers as an argument in favor of Veghorst. That's me saying Veghorst presses a lot. If he can be coached into a system where he understands the pressing instructions, he's not going to struggle to hit the volume. As opposed to a player like, let's say, Christian Eriksen, who he can't be coached to press in a high volume because he doesn't have the legs to do it. So 
all of that is to say defensive metrics are measurements of how much a player is currently involved in the defensive efforts of their team and not the extent to which those involvements are good or bad. Yeah, I would add on to that. I think things like defensive execution we perceive as fully coachable. If you have the physical abilities, um, you can learn it. And I think we view like off-ball movement for strikers similarly. If you have the physical abilities, you'll just learn it. With good coaching, you'll learn it. I don't think that's true. I think in some cases it's true. I think you can, obviously you can coach pressing. Obviously you can coach off-ball movement. I'm not going to tell you these things aren't coachable. But I think they're, I think we have a tendency to be like, physical things are uncoachable and mental things are fully coachable. When I think the reality is mental things are more coachable than physical things, but there's limitations. Some players, and I'm not saying Ahmad can't learn defensive our defensive scheme. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, assuming that you put Anthony and Ahmad in the same uh, environment and Ahmad will immediately catch up to Anthony or even eventually catch up to Anthony as a, as a given, I think is, is folly. Um, just because I think it's tough to rewire many, many, many years of tendencies. And we see this in older players, and Ahmad's pretty young, so I, I'm pretty confident you can rewire it. But it's just something to keep in mind. I'll also say a few other things. So I think defensive out-of-possession work is quite different to striker movement as a coachable trait for a few reasons. Uh, number one is I think it's simpler in nature like I, I think I think it can be to some yeah to some extent I think you can simplify the set of defensive actions a player needs to make and the scenario that needs to be coached on an individual level whereas striker movement is is extremely variable and very hard to even analyze or pick out um, in matches because you'll go long sequences of matches and then the best strikers will do one thing and then they'll that move that movement will be gone for like 20 games. And it'll come up in like spurts based on what is available that the opposition do. Whereas to at least some extent, defensive actions are largely based on what you what your team is doing to prevent the opposition from playing. That's, that's a good point. The other thing, yeah, the other thing I'll say is this is a Manchester United Premier League centric podcast that is centered around a league that has the best pressing in the world and the best in-possession play in the world, and the, probably the best athletes in the world, if you were to step down three or four levels from the Premier League, and probably even less than three or four, you're not seeing high-level pressing structures anymore. Like, pressing is the type of thing I mean, that if I you literally go to the championship, which I think the way you're talking about it, I assume you mean the championship is more than one level below the Premier League in this context. Yeah. Which is to say, like, there are other European top flights that are between the Premier League and the Championship. If you just go to the Championship, the sophistication of out-of-possession approaches is so much lower. And that's not to say there aren't high-end pressing sides in the Championship, but there's, they're fewer and further between. And what you need to be able to be a high-end pressing side in the Championship is not the same as the Premier League because the Premier League has the best players on the ball which necessitates the best pressing to prevent them from being able to do what they do, right? But also with pressing, we've talked this whole season about how United have these two ways of playing in build-up, right? And how, you know, in the last week or so, number two has come up because United have faced high-level presses. But before that, United went on a winning run of, you know, 10 games where they did not face a high-level press and largely played out of the back. And they've been playing top-flight teams, very good teams, even Europa League teams, right? And those teams were not pressing them enough to force United's defense to respond, even with its weaknesses. So we are talking about a level of approach that is adopted by the smallest percentile of sides in the game. And what that means in this context is players playing academy football or lower league football um in different teams and and different youth setups 
are not likely to come into the senior level and immediately be able to do all this stuff, right? Um, Which, as an aside, I think is one reason to be really optimistic about the reported integration of the youth sides, or specifically the U23 side with the senior side. Because I think if you can get the U23 side's tactics and preparation more in line with the senior side, you're going to see a much cleaner pipeline between the two. Yeah, this is a big hole that we could dig here. But I think what one thing academies like Cobham and La Masia do right that most clubs don't do just is, just just for the sake of clarity, say say which clubs those are. Just sorry, Cobham is Chelsea's academy. La Masia is Barcelona's academy. I think they tend to be both the best in their country for producing players who are at the top level and that's the top flight, not necessarily playing for Chelsea and Barcelona. Um, they coach their players to understand these types of approaches because they have established ideas of how they play the game at those levels that correspond with ideas of how they're going to play when they are brought into the senior team. Um Orlando was on our pod, right? In episode like he was. 12 or 13. He's written a lot about this subject. So, um, yeah, we follow him on the Devils in the Details account. You can probably dig it up somewhere. He's done a lot of writing on this subject on how Chelsea structure their youth teams and how their youth teams play to prepare their players for the senior team. And more teams need to be doing stuff like that. Um, but I'll, I'll leave it there because we could go on forever and it's not really pertinent to what we're currently talking about. I think to summarize... Right now, in Anthony, we have a player who's very refined in the demands of the system and has potential to be a very good contributor at Premier League level. And as such, I think it's unlikely that someone else is going to replace him in the near future. But in the long term, it could be possible with players like Ahmad, Sancho coming in and their development trajectories unknown at this point. Which brings us to the last right-wing option that was brought up, which is Palistri. Evan Conway had a question. What is Case's Palistri take? Wingback? And that is in response to Case semi-jokingly tweeting that he would like to see Facundo Palistri play at right back for United. I'll try to make this as short as possible because I think it's mostly me being silly. I didn't think Palistri was very good when we signed him from Uruguay. Um, He was really young, so it's not really fair to judge a player based on that. He's clearly gotten a lot better since then. Um, but what I did see of him in La Liga was pretty underwhelming. Now the player I think we see is somebody who's pretty technically sound, has pretty powerful legs, so he can like get down the line better than Anthony at least, um, and you know he can hit across pretty well. I don't think there's that much more there, um, but that the player I just described is pretty similar to players you see successfully convert to right back. Um, so, like, I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not saying, like, convert Ballistry to right back, and that's the solution, That's and you're going to get, like, high-quality first-team minutes out of him for United. Not saying that. All I'm saying is, uh, when you have a player who's sort of limited in the angles he can play, has a certain strength, which is a strength that I think nowadays you can associate with, like, traditional overlapping fullbacks, um, and happens to be a deficiency of both of our uh, starting right backs. It's an idea. Um, but I, honestly, mostly I was kidding. Uh, maybe Palistri can be like a useful squad option at right wing. I'll, I'll be a slightly controversial again and say, I don't think he's anywhere near as good as Anthony is. Yeah. The way I see it is to be a squad option. You really need to be one of the best two in the position at the club. And that would be my number one rationale for this right-back idea, which has no real proof. He he misplaced, like, a really dangerous pass in, like, a similar position to where you'd find a right-back later in this match after I tweeted that, so... Yeah, yeah, like, Twitter has this idea of, like, we see players exhibiting certain attributes at one position that we typically associate with another position. Let's move the player from that position to the other position. And it's something that... It can save a player's career and has in certain examples, but by and large, it doesn't really work that way. 
And it's not that these players can't convert positions. It's that we don't have enough information to assert that they can. Um, I think that's well But I think what we're kind of insinuating here is that Palistri is not one of United's two best options at right wing. He could be one of United's two best options at right back. Try him there. It's also a half joke. I think we can move on from that. Yes. Let's do a couple more. Let's talk about... I guess we're now just deep into Q&A. Let's talk about Alonga. Um, so Alonga was the other option proposed at right wing. We had a lot of questions about Alonga, actually. Seth said, do you see Alonga's future at striker? Nostrum said, do you think Alonga has a future at the club? I'll say this about Alonga. He is intelligent and works hard out of possession. He is the best box mover of any player that United's youth team has produced in recent memory. He's at worst the third best box mover at the club, like contracted to the club right now, I think. Yeah, I agree. Is that enough for him to be a starter at the club? No. Is that enough for him to be the second choice striker at the club? I would say no. Is that enough for him to be like the last rotation option i think so will he ultimately secure that spot for himself probably not because that's a really specific spot i actually think he's pretty good as a backup uh i don't I thought disagree. he showed quite a bit last season yeah. at either left wing or striker not right wing i don't like the angles he gets at right wing yeah i i like the combination of you know he's technically secure but not good um he's a decently productive dribbler, like enough as a striker for sure. Really good out of possession. Pretty good movement in front of goal to generate shots. With these kind of players, the difference between, you know, a championship player versus a Champions League player is how many goals do they score? That's ultimately what it is because he's not contributing heavily in other phases of the game, um, except defensively, which is valuable but not uh make or break i would say and so i don't think he's gonna score enough to be a starter as you said that you'd probably be looking at one and two for that um i don't think i i think the squad player amount is probably about one and three and i think he was doing that early on under rangnick when the team was still functional and he hasn't really played in like first he was playing in bad teams and then he was not playing in functional teams after that. So I think there's evidence that he could be a squad player. But I think the rationale for saying he won't make it is that there are two better options at left wing now. And there are two better options at striker now in Veghorst, Martial, Rashford, Garnacho, And I would see at least three of those four being there next season and at least another player coming in in one of those positions. And Sancho is still a wild card. So I don't. Ju- I just don't see him getting playing time uh, in, at United in the long term. Basically what I've cooked down to is this. And I think, I think you agree with me here, so tell me if you do. He's not good enough to be the first guy off the bench if you have a serious long-term injury to one of your starters. Maybe he could be that later, but I'm not confident. And that's so and so that's not good enough to like secure him a squad spot indefinitely. Yeah. And I think because he's limited in a team of players who are largely good on the ball, like if Rashford gets hurt, for example, if you replace him with a Lango, you're losing output on the ball. You're losing value in possession. Um and if same thing with Anthony, same thing with Bruno. Which basically leaves him playing the role of a Veghorst or Martial. And that's what you've seen, right? He's playing up front. Um, and for that reason, he becomes a pretty specific player. I do think if he moved a couple places down the table, though, he'd be really good. Like, I think he's I think he's a good player. I think he's one of the better academy players that we've produced in the last couple of years. I agree. Next um, question? Yeah, sure. You choose. Uh, oh, I get to choose. This is my favorite question that we got asked. I, I apologize for picking favorites. But Tom Armstrong asked, has Ten Hag done something this season that has surprised you? Or do you feel he is simply implementing his vision? What do you think, Aaron? 
I think I believed Ten Hag was an adaptable coach when he joined the club, which makes every decision that he makes to make the team better sort of understandable from his perspective. So I'm not, I haven't seen anything where I've been absolutely baffled by. Um, Things that he's done that I would not have expected, there are a few. One is I think the use of the fullbacks has been really interesting. Um, And this, all of these will probably fall under the theme of, you know, he did things a certain way coaching Ajax in Eredivisie. He is doing things a different way based on how he's interpreting things at United. Um, so number one, yeah, the fullbacks. Ten Hag's Ajax really, I loved his use of the fullbacks. Like that was one of my favorite things about that side where they would underlap and overlap and invert. Those three being underlap being you come inside and make a run while your winger is wide. Uh, overlap being your winger comes inside and you make a run out wide. And invert being you come into midfield. And his fullbacks in the la- in the later side, it was Blinda Mazrawi were able to do all three pretty seamlessly and at different times throughout matches to provide different sources of threat. I don't think we've quite seen that level of fluidity at United. Um, and as well, I don't think we've quite seen the same level of aggression in the press. That's something we've talked about a lot. I think largely United's fullbacks have been used as support players uh, to both strengthen rest defense and also strengthen uh, United's ability to build through midfield, which which surprised me. I was expecting him to go for fullbacks who can do a little bit of everything, and especially with players like Shaw, Dalo, Malasia, who I think can do that and will eventually do that at some point. I I, I would have expected to see it sooner, but I, I think for all intents and purposes, I understand why he did it. Yeah, I, I would add on, I think probably the fullback of those three that you mentioned who's played the closest to the way his fullbacks have previously in his managerial career uh, would be Malasia. Um, but Malasia has had like a, some weird ones, right? Like some just some weird appearances. I think today it was a weird appearance. I think he was good on the in the aggregate, but then he just does like a few things where it's like he kind of – it feels like he's falling asleep at the wheel. Um I remember one specific instance, I think Forrest were counterattacking from a set piece we had. Maybe it was a corner. Wambasaka gets isolated. It's just him and the player with the ball and 50 yards of space behind him. And he sort of forces the player on the ball, the Forrest player on the ball, towards our, defensively, our left wing, which is to say Forrest attacking their right wing. Um, and Malasia should be there's there's a runner who comes you know on the other side of the pitch and Malasia should have tracked him and the guy gets like 20 yards ahead of Malasia before Malasia has any idea he's there and if Wambasaka hadn't blocked sort of the, the 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 shot or I think actually what what the forest player should have done who had the ball was square it and it would have been a tap in and we would have conceded but instead that he shot um yeah I Malasia just has moments like that that are are weird um, and I wonder if the plan was actually originally for Malasi to play more minutes than he has, but he's done weird stuff and it's put him in a place where like Shaw is so good that like whatever stylistic differences Malasia has over Shaw, it's just not worth it. It's just because Shaw is yeah. so good. I think Malasia is a good fullback. I think Dalo is a very good fullback and I think Shaw is one of the best fullbacks in the world. I think it pretty much boils down to that. When Sean Dahl are fit, they play. Yeah, agreed. Um, okay. Uh, as for my answer to this question, biggest surprises for me, I, I don't know how much of this was posturing for the media, but like his positivity and enthusiasm surrounding Ronaldo and Martial as strike options, strike, striker options, because um, I think neither of them really do what he wants strikers to do regardless of what he's said about it. Um, and I think recent developments support that idea. Um, so I would say that's the big thing that's surprised me. Otherwise, um, the lack of urgency surrounding su- uh, replacing De Gea. I would say those are the two things for me, which, yeah, I don't, I don't know if those are myself or us, that being Aaron and me, misperceiving 
the things he puts emphasis on or whether that's him posturing because he knows he can't, he couldn't replace those players in the short term. Um, I'm inclined to believe it's the latter, but we could work out, work out to be the former. So, uh, last question, Kat asks, would you take Kane in the summer if we can't get Aussie men and which signings do we need to challenge for the title? The Kane thing for me comes down to price tag. If it's a hundred million, it's too much. If it's 60 million, I would do it. Uh, yeah. What about you? Yeah, I think my opinion has changed a little bit in recent weeks. I think United are closer to a title challenge than I would have thought three months ago. In that, I think if they got a couple of players, they could do it. I think the problem you run into if you spend too much of the budget on Kane is you don't have enough budget to spend on the other positions you need. And then when you buy Kane, you're making a run at it, right? Like Mm, that to me is a clear signal of you sign Kane, you sign Casemiro, you're making a run at the title. I think Kane's a great player, though. Like, uh, there's a lot of conversation about Kane. Kane is one of the best strikers I've ever seen. No doubt about it. And I think he'd fit in really well. I think he'd yeah. score a ton of goals. He's like he a perfect fit, fit. It's going, is the thing. It's going under the radar how, how good of a season he's having as well. Because people have either been fixated on Holland or decided that if a player doesn't win the competition... Their contributions don't matter, which is (laughs) nonsense. Which leads to the other question. What else would United need in that event? I I think I agree on your fees. Like I would definitely not break the bank for Kane. Um, I think if you find the Aussie men is like a hundred plus million, you might not be able to finance that. You then spend the 50 to 60 million on Kane. If that's what you can get him for. Who else do United need? A goalkeeper. Like, seriously, United need a goalkeeper. De Gea has made so many mistakes in the last week in terms of claiming crosses, playing out of the back. Even even in this restricted system, he's not playing particularly well, and he's restricting the system, which is making United worse than their competitors. Yeah. I think you can make the argument he's the worst player in the starting 11 pretty easily. Yeah, I agree with that. He is definitely. Um... Example, Ramsdale at Arsenal. I don't think he's a particularly good goalkeeper. I do think he is a goalkeeper who fits the demands of their system and as such allows them to play the way they want to play without particularly excelling on an individual level. Even if United got a goalkeeper like that, I think they'd be fine. And I think goalkeepers like David Raya, who's running into the last year of his contract, are better than Ramsdale. Central midfield, Eriksson has limited legs. I think with Fred, you have a really good squad player, but you run into this weird thing where he doesn't directly replace any of the three starting midfielders. So bringing him in is a little bit odd. Um, I think the ideal deployment of Fred is you have a deep-lying playmaker behind him who does a little bit of the positional defensive stuff. Someone like Michael Carrick, someone like Prime Matic. Um, I think what you really have right now is Casemiro, so when Erickson's out, it's not that easy to just throw in Fred and be able to do good stuff in possession. Um, so United need a central midfielder. I would love Frankie. I don't think United will get Frankie. After that, there's a number of options that I think could do it. And then right back. If Dalo stays fit all season, I think he's good enough. He's definitely not one of the best fullbacks in the world. I think he's a level below that. I think a level below that is still very good. Like there's probably five to six fullbacks in the tier above him and all of them are unattainable. Um, Right now, Dalla would need to go from being, I would say like a mediocre attacker to being like an exceptional attacker for him to be one of the best fullbacks in the world. Um, I think he's one of the best in buildup. I think he's okay defensively. Um, I, I think he's good defensively compared to some of the fullbacks in that top tier. But yeah, I think you, if you get a player like Malu Gusto, for example, who is younger and already has elements of his skill set that suggest he could be an elite attacking fullback. And then you have Dalo, and if Dalo gets injured, you also have depth. I think that's that could be important. But if Dalo is 
This season, Dalo has spent quite a bit of time injured. If Dalo was fit all season, I don't really think there would be as much talk around right back. Yeah, I agree. Um, any other key positions you see there? I, I agree with what you highlighted. In central midfield, I'd say specifically what you're looking for is somebody like Frankie, which is to say um, relatively high engine, very good in possession. Key thing is that they're hyper-press resistant and they can carry the ball, which, like, that's not... I would say there's maybe, like, two midfielders in the world who are anywhere near as press-resistant as he is, so you're probably compromising there. But yeah, I would say those are the four spots. Striker, center midfield, right back, goalkeeper. I would sign a good but not elite build-up central midfielder over signing nobody if the goal was to challenge right away. I agree. Um, because I think leaving it to Erickson for the whole season is a bad idea. So someone like Yuri Tielemans, for example, who's available on a free... I don't think he's of the level where he should be starting for a top Champions League team. I do think he's of a level where he would significantly improve upon the options United have outside Ericsson. And he has more likes to play a full season, I think, than Ericsson. Um, so something like that would be something I would look to as a compromise option. Uh, but no, those for this summer, I think those are the options I'd say. Like, number one, decent goalkeeper who fits the system. Number two, top-end striker. Number three, top-end central midfielder. Number four, uh, squad rotation, right back. And then after that, there are a couple other positions that you could improve upon, but I don't think United will have the funds. I think they might try and sacrifice one of the first four to get a center back. Probably a left-footed center back. I don't know who. Um, I think it might be a right-footed center back. I think that might actually be the priority. And and I say that being the person who insisted that there's going to be another left-footed center back coming in. In the, I think Shaw has kind of changed perceptions though a little bit. Yeah, probably true. Um, but I think, yeah, you just want somebody who's better on the ball as an option at right center back. Like you've got Varon, who's not very good on the ball, but really good defensively, and then you've got McGuire and Lindelof, who are varying levels of good on the ball and good defensively. Um, but I don't think any of them like cover all the bases. So I think what you'd like is maybe you sell one or two of Lindelof and Maguire, and you get somebody else in at right center back who's very good on the ball and worse defensively than Moran. Um Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Timber in one of our conversations earlier. I'm not sure how I feel about Lissandro and Timber as a partnership. I wouldn't go. But I, I wouldn't do, think- do it, but I, I said that as like, that's what's going to happen. I do think Timber will be the player that that is the priority. Well, I, I, I could see it also from the angle of like a right back deputy who is better than what is currently there when Dalo's out. I just, I'm not convinced Timber becomes like a a high end center back or B a high end right back, like absolute top end. And B I'm not, I'm not convinced that if he does, like, I think if he does, it'll be as a center back. And I'm not sure that Lissandro is the right partner for him at the highest level of the premier league. Yeah. I, I think it will be at center back if it does happen. And I think I, yeah, I understand the concern there with two short center backs. Though I will say, I do think. Yeah, it's not just short, but yeah. yeah. I I do think the agility, speed, and like game reading and press resistance and on the ball ability that those two have as a partnership is preferable to like two tall dudes who don't have those things. But that's really not the point. The only thing I would change from what you said is I would swap striker and goalkeeper in terms of priority. I think striker is more important, but. I know we've had that conversation. Well, De Gea's contract's also down. So I'm kind of... If United don't renew De Gea, they don't have a goalkeeper at all. Which is why that's number one. But, yeah. I also wouldn't be surprised to see Veghorst join permanently. Um, I don't expect him to. But I would. It, it's not out of the question to me that he performs well enough that Ten Hag goes, yeah, we could take him. Um, and with Burnley getting promoted, they're going to be doing a lot of I think cyclical transfer movement and I don't think they see Veghorst as part of their plans. So I don't think it would be particularly expensive. Agreed. Awesome. Okay. I think on that note, this is a bit of like a, like a quieter or like a less, I think major topical podcast. I feel like what we're beginning to see is like a lot of the things that we have talked about in the past are just playing out in these games. Like, 
United concede stuff in the press. United are not perfect in executing the press. United make mistakes in buildup, personnel issues that prevent controlling the game in possession. This is all stuff that we've been talking about. Um, yeah, so maybe there will be something new to talk about next week. I um, think next week we'll hit on rest, blows our rest defense, I think we'll try to talk about. Because we had a couple of good questions this week um, about rest defense that we didn't get to. So, Yeah, it's interesting. And I also feel like that's an area I could learn more about. So maybe we'll look forward to that and try to talk a little bit about it next week. Until then, have a good one. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.